Last night as I was uh, standing out greeting people that were coming in for the Saturday night service, I noted that some people would come in wearing short sleeves and shorts, and then the next person would come in wearing a winter coat. Uh, it is that time of year. Fall has uh, fallen. Uh, good to see you on this gorgeous Sunday morning in September. Last week, uh, we began this series with a question. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And I argued that among the ways we could answer that question is to note that he is the most influential person who ever lived. There have been 60 billion people who have walked on this planet. No one has shaped it more profoundly than Jesus. And I then went on to set before you three of the ways that he had changed the world that we live in. I noted, for starters, that he elevated the status of all people, especially the have-nots. Women, children, the sick, and the poor. He, he did this in a way that, that eventually led his followers to start institutions called hospitals and institutions called orphanages. He did it in ways that promoted education and learning and literacy. He did it in ways that led to the abolition of slavery. Secondly, I noted that his love for the life of the mind built a West where uh, the, the church, the, the community of his followers, would eventually pull Europe out of the so-called Dark Ages. And they would create a, a worldview, they would, they would embrace a worldview that would give birth to the scientific revolution, and they would also launch and, and fuel and fund, for the longest time, higher education itself. This all came out of Christ's directive to love God with our mind. Finally, I also noted that he changed the moral compass that we look at. He's the one that said, revenge is a bad thing. Loving your enemy is the call on our life. And humility is not a bad thing. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a good thing. I noted that, that, that he did all these things, that he shaped our world in spite of the fact that he was born in the, in the flyover zone of the Roman Empire, that he lived in obscurity until the age of 30, and that he was dead by the time he was 34. In spite of those obstacles, Christ has emerged as the most significant, most influential, most important person to ever live. Well... Today, we're going to ask a different question. Today, I want to ask a question specifically, what did he say? What is it that this man taught? What did he, what did he say? In your reading this week, assuming that you are following along, uh, you read chapter 2, which uh, noted that Jesus has existed from before time began and it followed Christ through creation and the Old Testament era, the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. It, it looked at the announcement of this virgin conception. It looked at some of the circumstances around his birth and his early years, led up basically up until his public ministry. 
This week in your reading, if you read chapter 3, we will pick up with Christ's baptism, his then uh, walk out into the desert for a time of testing and trial and preparation, and then essentially the focus is on the three years of his public ministry, which will take us right up until his final march towards Jerusalem for the events that we now refer to as Holy Week. During those three years, Christ was a teacher. He was an itinerant rabbi. He spent his time traveling from village to village, uh, teaching, preaching, explaining the Hebrew Scriptures. And and he did this um, as, as a calling. Now, it's worth noting that there were other rabbis, It's worth noting that uh, Jesus did other things. For instance, he invested his life in a handful of of followers. We call them disciples or apostles. And in addition to those 12, there were others most likely that were traveling around with Christ uh, during that time, including women who actually may have been bankrolling the whole enterprise. It's also worth noting that Jesus was not just any old rabbi. When he began to teach, after he came out of the desert, he quickly emerged as one of the premier teachers throughout the land. As a matter of fact, quite early on, he develops sort of rock star status. And when Jesus is in a town, we read that, you know, so many people are trying to get close to him and touch him that he can't even tell who does touch him. And that people will actually tear buildings apart to get inside in order to get close to him, right? He becomes a a, a very, very prominent teacher in Israel. And this is in part because he spoke with a freshness and, and an authority and a power that no one has spoken with before. It's also due, in large part, to his ability to perform miracles, And among the the miracles that really drew the crowds were his ability to heal the sick. So there were a number of things going on during these three years that that take Jesus from obscurity uh, very quickly to being a prominent teacher. And then as we follow him on his march towards Jerusalem and again the final week of his life, which is what most of the Gospels are really leading to. But what I want to ask... Is it, what did he say when he was teaching? If you had the opportunity to, to be in the village where Christ strolled into town and, uh, and listened to him speak, if he went into the synagogue in your village and taught, if you gathered alongside the, the river or the, the, the sea where he's speaking, if you're sitting on the, the mountainside while he's teaching, what would he say? Right? What was his message? What did he talk about? Well, uh, we don't have it all, but we have a lot. And I want to say that that based on what we have been given, there were two big themes uh, of Christ's teaching. There was was one which uh, we'll start with, which was in, in essence sort of an ethical overview of life. Jesus talked about God and about faith and about, uh, about loving others and serving others. He talked about what life was supposed to look like. He gave us uh, an ethical system. And, and 
for my purposes, I tried to summarize this for you, and, and I would argue that there were five big categories in his ethics. Number one, the first one is that God comes first. Most of us love ourselves first, our family and loved ones second, and God third. Jesus calls on us to reverse that order. In, in his world, God is to be first, right? We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us that our love for God is to be so overwhelming, so passionate, that our love for our loved ones looks like hate alongside it. In, in, in Christ's worldview, God is preeminent, Right? God does not exist for our benefit. We exist for his glory. God comes first. The second thing that Christ taught was that others come second. Right? It, the expectation of Jesus is that our, our vertical relationship with God is going to spill out in horizontal acts of kindness and charity and love and mercy and service to other people. People matter, especially the poor. And it is Christ's expectation that we are going to put the needs of others ahead of our own. As a matter of fact, Jesus is, is so shocking that he suggests that we should love those we hate. The third thing, third big category of Christ's teaching, would be that the way up is down. Right, that, uh, that the first will be last. That those uh, who want to get ahead in this world will be those who will go to the end of the line. That those who will serve. These are not, this is, this is not uh, instruction to act against our own best interest. This is just instruction to clear up our own confusion and our own selfish bias because in God's world... The way up really is down. The great serve. That is what we do. That is what we are called to. The way up is down. The fourth big idea that permeates Christ's teaching is that we're going to live forever. And this changes everything. According to Christ, everyone is going to live forever either in the presence of God, in, in a place of great love and joy, or cut off from God and all that is good and gracious. And the fact that we're going to live forever changes everything. I mean, it, Christ says those who are living just for this life are fools. We need to live today in light of the fact that we're going to live forever. And much of what Christ teaches actually does not make any sense unless you get this point. If you are only looking at this life, then a whole lot of what Christ teaches does not make any sense at all. But once you begin to look past the grave and think about eternity, then everything changes. And then finally, the fifth category, the fifth theme that you find in Christ's teaching is that we are stewards. That everything everywhere belongs to God. He maintains all rights. We are simply temporarily entrusted with certain gifts and resources and abilities. And we are expected to use those gifts and resources and abilities in ways that reflect God's stated values and priorities. 
And he's quite clear that we will be held accountable for what we do with what we're given. And as a matter of fact, he's quite clear that those to whom much has been given will be held to a higher standard. If you showed up in a village and Christ came into town and was teaching, you would likely hear ideas that sort of wove those things together. It was shocking. And the people were shocked. As I've said before, Get a red letter Bible and read the black letters after the red letters. And you will find that people are often reeling. They're often without breath, right? They're saying things like, who is this man? We've never heard these things before. We've never been around somebody that has this kind of power and authority before. Or they're, 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 they're mad or they're disturbed, right? Christ's Teaching was shocking. It it took people's breath away. And, And I would submit to you that it wasn't just shocking, it was, upon reflection, beautiful and profound and timeless and transcendent and and cross cultural. And that we would do well. to to study what Christ taught and to meditate on it and to memorize it and to lean into it with everything that we've got. You will not find a greater system of, of thinking and living than what we have been given by Christ. And the world would work if everybody leaned into it. But Christ's teaching and those five points that he shared are arguably not the most important thing that he taught. They're they're arguably not his main message. Christ's main message, Christ's major topic, was himself. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about Jesus. And the things that he said about himself were even more shocking. Now, this is surprising. Many people don't get this, and it's surprising when it finally comes into focus because generally, great leaders, great, great religious and moral reformers don't spend a lot of time talking about themselves. When Socrates was told that that others were saying that he was the wisest person to ever live, Socrates' response was to say, the only reason people would say that I'm wise is because I know how little I know. That's that's the same kind of, of response you get from Buddha. That's the same kind of response you get from Muhammad. That's the same kind of response you get from Gandhi. That's the same kind of thinking that you get from Abraham and Moses and great religious and moral leaders. They don't say, I'm great. They don't say, I'm, I know everything. But Jesus says, I am great. I do know everything. It's shocking right jesus says i am god i am equal to the father everything everywhere has been created through me all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me i should be worshiped 
I will return as judge over everyone who has ever lived. Jesus says the most shocking things anyone could ever say. He claims to be God and he claims to be the only path through which we can gain eternal life. You cannot make bigger and bolder claims than Jesus made about himself. Now, many people do not get this. Many people do not many people do not know the Jesus that is on the pages of the gospels. They, they think of Jesus as a, as a mild-mannered, self-effacing, uh, never-get-dirty, be-kind-to-others person, right? A, a mild-mannered guy who said uh, to other mild-mannered people that they should be even more mild-mannered. That's the Jesus that most people think of. That Jesus does not exist. That Jesus is a Jesus they have made up. That Jesus does not look anything like the Jesus we find on the pages of the Bible. Who is shocking. Who is dangerous. Who is disturbing. Who leaves people reeling. Who makes the biggest claims anyone ever could make about himself. That's the Jesus who actually exists. I would submit to you that many of us are guilty of turning Jesus into an idol. And we do this because the Jesus that we know, the Jesus that we think about, the Jesus that we understand is not the Jesus of Scripture. It is a safe Jesus that we have made up. It's a Jesus we can manage. It's a Jesus we can be comfortable with. It's not the Jesus we find in the Gospels. This Jesus makes big, disturbing claims. In, uh, in the chapter that you're going to read this week, uh, I list four what I refer to as inflection points. There are four uh, moments among a dozen, two dozen moments in the Gospels. I pull out four moments when uh, the fog clears and there's a bit more clarity around Christ and, and Jesus says something or he does something or something else happens and there's a moment where everybody realizes, oh my goodness, he's bigger than I thought. So, for instance, the transfiguration was, was a moment when a few of the, uh, of the apostles had a picture of who Jesus was. And there are other moments, inflection points through the Gospels, and I pull out four, and I, I want to I turn to one of them right now. It's found in the Gospel of John, the eighth chapter. We're going to start reading in verse 48. As you turn there, let me note that, that after you have read through the Bible, in its entirety a couple of times, things that you missed begin to jump off the page at you. You don't get them initially, but once you know what you're looking for, they begin, you know, to glow. You go, oh my goodness, this ties back to this. Christ was was on an interesting path during these three years that are going to lead up to his death on the cross. There were a lot of people looking for the Messiah. 
But they had a skewed understanding of who the Messiah would be, what the Messiah would be like. Jesus was not interested in fulfilling their expectations of a political military leader. And so he's always sort of got his head down, and he's a little cryptic about uh, the way he answers some of the questions. If you know what to look for, you realize he's giving off clues all the time. But as you get closer to the cross, he gets bolder and clearer in what he says. One of the moments of clarity is uh, this interaction that he has with the Pharisees. Um, in, in John's gospel, the, the trouble for Christ begins in John chapter 5. He heals a man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees don't like this. They have a little interchange. Jesus reports that he is just doing what his Father in heaven would have him do. This further unnerves the Pharisees. John chapter 8 opens up with them trying to trick Christ. They brought a woman caught in adultery. They want to know, should, should they stone him, her as the law commands, or does he recommend something different? This is a trap. Christ, of course, very deftly, graciously, profoundly navigates that little challenge, and he says to them, you know, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone, and then uh, immediately after that, uh, they all start to walk away, starting with uh, the oldest and then going to the youngest, and then Christ turns to the woman and he says, no one left to condemn you, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Well, that's followed by a little dust-up between Christ and the Pharisees uh, over Christ's claim to be the light of the world. They don't like this. There's a little interchange between them, which leads Jesus to say to the Pharisees that they don't know God and are, in fact, children of the devil. At the risk of, of, uh, you know, uh, of beating a dead horse, I will simply point out Telling somebody that they are a child of the devil is not the kind of thing Mr. Rogers uh, did, right? Jesus is not that nice, calm, mild-mannered person that everybody tries to make him. So there's a little bit of a dust up there, and then we get to verse 46. They're still in this argument, and in verse 46, Jesus claims to be perfect, which... uh, Wow. I mean, just imagine you are in a disagreement with somebody and they throw that out. Oh, by the way, I'm perfect. Uh, I mean, that's sort of a a conversation stopper and uh, they stop. But Jesus is just, you know, says, which of you can which of you can point to any sin in my life? Right. I'm perfect. So. That's the, that's the tenor of John chapter 8, and we're going to pick up now on, um, on the conversation midstream. It's going to open with them um, saying that Jesus is a Samaritan, which is the, the first century equivalent of using the N-word, so it's, there's going to be an ethnic slur here, which Jesus ignores. He spent a lot of time reaching out to the Samaritans. He doesn't think there's anything wrong with being a Samaritan, so... He says nothing about this, but they will also accuse him of being um, demon-possessed. It's going to follow that line of thinking up until this moment when Christ will make a bold claim to be God. They will pick up stones to kill him. Let me read John chapter 8, beginning with verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? 
I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. He's talking about his heavenly Father. There is one who seeks it. Uh, excuse me. But I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth. Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. The religious leaders picked up stones to stone Jesus because he had just taken the covenant name, the sacred, holy name of God for himself. This was unthinkable at levels we cannot even begin to relate to. The, the, the Bible is full of a number of different titles and terms that are used to refer to God. In the Hebrew and Greek, there's words like El and Elohim and El Shaddai and, and um, Adonai and Theos. There's a number of different terms, and these terms are translated as God or Lord or King or Sovereign or Almighty or Provider. And they, they are used to describe different uh, attributes of God or different uh, titles for God, different offices that He fulfills. There is, alongside of this, a name for God. But it had not been introduced uh, very often in Scripture. As a matter of fact, it's not given until Moses comes along. When, when Moses has been called by God and, and commanded to lead the Jewish slaves out of Egypt, he asks God for his name. He says, when I, go back to the, when I go back into Egypt and I go to the Jewish people and I say, I have met with God and I am now here to lead you out of the troubles that you're in, they're going to ask me, what is his name? What do I say? Now, the request, what is his name, is the way it's phrased because in the Bible, names had more power. They had more meaning. They had more significance. It's not, Moses is not saying, they're going to ask me, what sound do I use to refer to you? They're asking, who is this God? What is he like? 
And, and so the, the, the name, the, the sacred name of God, the holy covenant name of God, is a powerful, holy word that, that is so profound that it's just not to be taken casually. Indeed, one of the commandments is don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This doesn't just mean don't use God's name as a swear word. There's more behind it. Well, God's response to Moses is when you go back and the people ask you, what is his name? You tell them, I am sent you. And he uses this verb to be, this Hebrew word, Yahweh, as his name. And it is a mysterious word. It is a unique word. It's the only only word in the entire Hebrew Bible that has four consonants instead of three. It is a, it is a holy, sacred title. Name of God. And it means, uh, we think, it, the emphasis here is, I am who I am. Or, I will be who I will be, not who you try to make me to be. I am God. So, God's reporting on his name is, I am. When the Jews said to Jesus, who do you think you are? What do you mean you, you saw Abraham? You're not yet 50 years old. Christ's response is, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. He takes God's holy, sacred name. This name is so holy to the Jews that they not only don't say it, they don't even write it. There's a whole code that they're going to develop because they don't even want to write this name lest they write it in some manner that is not worthy of God. That's how, that's how significant this name is to them. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And he takes God's name. Now, again, it's very likely that the first couple times you read through the Bible, this doesn't jump off the page at you. Please note, it jumped off the page at them. The the people that were listening to Christ knew exactly what he was claiming. And their only response is to pick up rocks to try and kill him. So let me put this in context. The most significant person to ever live, the the most important influential person who has ever lived in the history of the world, claims to be God. If 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 you take the most important people, the top ten most influential people, the most significant moral leaders, the people that everyone would say, this is one of the greatest people to ever live, if you take that list, Jesus, of course, would be on virtually everybody's list of the top ten most important, most significant, best people, and then you take a separate subset and you take all the people who claim to be God, okay, and you look at these two lists combined, the only name that is on both lists is Jesus. Again, 
Muhammad doesn't claim to be God. Buddha doesn't claim to be God. Gandhi doesn't claim to be God. Moses doesn't claim to be God. Abraham doesn't claim to be God. They don't claim to be God. Jesus claims to be God. The most significant person who ever lived claims to be God. It's not like me claiming to be God. It's not like you claiming to be God. It's the most significant person out of 60 billion claims to be God. So we have to decide what to do with that. And stepping back and looking at this dispassionately, there's only a few options. You can either decide that he is who he claims to be, at which point you bend your knee, you follow him, right? You, you, you reorient your life around Jesus and what he taught and what he did, and you embrace him for who he is. Or you say, wow, imagine the most significant person to ever live was also mentally insane because he thought he was God when he wasn't. And this isn't a small miss, right? This isn't somebody thinking that they're slightly better than they are. This is somebody missing by the biggest mark possible, being fundamentally wrong about their own identity, or, wow, the most significant person to ever live, right? The, the greatest moral reformer, the one who raised the status of everybody, including the have-nots, the one who, who, who elevated the, the status of women and children and slaves and the sick and the poor, the one who taught us not to seek revenge, the, the, the one who told us that we should be humble. The one who celebrated the life of the mind and gave us the scientific revolution in hospitals and orphanages. This person was also a profound liar. Those are our options. He's either Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. Now, there's a fourth option that some people will advocate, and that is to say that he's a legend, that he didn't exist. This doesn't get nearly as much play because it's really, really uh, sort of a non-starter. But if you're at the least bit concerned that perhaps the record that we're looking at is off in some way, I invite you to come back tonight to the lecture I'm going to give on the historical evidence for Christ. I simply leave you with this challenge. We need to figure out what to do with Christ. I'm betting my life on the fact that he is who he claimed to be, God himself. Next week, we'll look at a different question. We've started to answer who is this man. Today, we've been looking at what did he say. Next week, we'll look at what he did. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, we pray for clarity and insight around the person of Jesus, the work that he did, the claims that he made. I pray that those of us who um, have decided to follow Jesus, have declared him to be Lord, have sought uh, his forgiveness and and, and have leaned in to the mercy and grace that comes through his work and dying for us. I pray that those of us who are following Christ would, 
would lean in even more and we would fall more in love with Christ and become more like him. And I pray for those who are um, uh, unsettled, uh, confused, uh, I pray for clarity. I pray that um, this, this idea that has been perpetuated for the longest time, that Jesus is just a good teacher, a good person, but not God, that, that, the, that this would go away and the choice would be clear. And I pray, Father, that, that you would draw them to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.